Open up your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12 is where we have come in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of God's Word. As you're turning in your Gospel of Mark, I'd like to remind you of the only two certainties in life, according to Benjamin Franklin, death and taxes. We might be able to have a lively debate on which one of those was worse. In a letter that he wrote in 1789, he said, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And now, while that's the most famous example of that assertion, it does predate Benjamin Franklin. You go back to 1716 and a book that was published, uh, one of the characters in that book mentioned that death and taxes were the two certainties in life. This morning we come to a text that has been called by one preacher I listened to the most political text in the Bible. And it's a text that is on tax law. But that's not all it's about, and we'll find out as we go through it. Now as we consider the subject of taxes this morning, I'd like to get you thinking about what is a fair tax. You might be able to read, if you have good eyesight, to the chart that's up here as far as federal tax revenues go, and this is from 2015. Over $3 trillion in taxes were raised through individual income tax, payroll taxes, corporate income tax, and a whole bunch of other small taxes that are all combined on the chart. But that doesn't include state taxes. And so I was thinking this week, what do you, what do you think the average family pays in taxes as a percentage of income overall? So I did a little bit of research on that subject. And if you put together the federal taxes that we pay together with state taxes, property tax, sales tax, vehicle tax, and a bunch of little taxes that might add up to 1% or 2%. I guess that we're paying around 38% per household as far as we go here in our church, which is a, a rather hefty amount of income paid in taxes. Now, people do not like paying taxes, and this morning we're going to be looking into what the Scripture has to say on the subject in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. A rather short passage compared to what we have been covering in Mark's Gospel. We're slowing down a little bit here because we're getting to some of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to just the miracles. And you can have a whole long story about a miracle that covers 30 verses in one morning. But when you get into the nitty-gritty details of how are we supposed to be followers of Jesus Christ, how are we supposed to live in this world, it's good to slow down and really examine carefully the words of Christ and what we can learn from his instruction. This is a discipleship section in the Gospel of Mark, but it's also a section that teaches us how to act wisely in the world in light of the hostility that we will face in the world around us. So this morning, not only are we going to learn about taxes, but we're also going to learn about how to deal with people who want to make you look bad. How to be wise when you are lied to and flattered for the sake of damage to your reputation. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Here's our outline for today. We're going to see in verses 13 and 14, there are hypocrites on the hunt for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see how the Lord Jesus Christ escapes that trap in verses 15 through 17. Let's begin in verses 13 and 14. You follow along. I'll read it out loud for us. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. 
For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Let's stop there. So, it says, they sent to him. And the question naturally arises, well, who is the they? We're in a section here where Jesus is having confrontation with the spiritual leaders and political leaders as they was united in Israel, in Jerusalem. He has entered into the temple. He has taken authority to cast out the money changers and to cast out those who were selling animals for sacrifice. And the Sanhedrin had sent to him and said, who gave you the authority to do this? They tried to get him to blaspheme so that they could have some charge against him in their court. However, Jesus masterfully handled that encounter and now they're sending to him to try to trap him on a charge of sedition in the Roman courts. They are trying to get him guilty before some court, either their court on blasphemy or the Roman court on sedition. So when they're coming and sending to him, this is again the members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, as we have referenced back in chapter 11, verse 27. So all the way from the end of chapter 11 here to the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is dealing with these representatives of what is known as the great Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, both are correct. Now, the Sanhedrin was composed of about 70 chief priests, scribes, and elders, a total of 70 elders of Israel, and they took this form of government from the example of Moses. You could jot it down, we won't take the time to turn there, but back in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, God instructed Moses to gather together 70 of the elders of Israel in order to help him to govern the people. And so the people still saw themselves as being under the law of Moses, and they thought, well, the best form of government then for us would be to have the 70 elders who are helping Moses, God's law, to govern God's people. Sounds good in theory. But in practice, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they were not following the law of Moses, and they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites on the hunt for a righteous man, for the one that they saw as their rival who could unmask them before the people and show them for what they really were. Men should be what they pretend to be, but very often we find that is not the case. And that's one of the key lessons we're going to take away from this morning. Don't be naive. Recognize that when it comes especially to the world of politics, all men are liars and don't trust any of them. Now, Verse 13, they sent to him. Who did they send? They sent some from the Pharisees and some from the Herodians. This is the second time in Mark's gospel that we've seen the conjunction of these groups. Not natural allies. It was all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that we first came into contact with this alliance. Mark chapter 3, verse 6, is where the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So then at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry... The Pharisees in Galilee and the Herodians were already seeking how to destroy Jesus. Now we've come to the end of his three-year ministry and we've got the Pharisees and the Herodians being sent by the Sanhedrin to come and try to trap Jesus in his talk, as it says there in verse 13. Who were the Pharisees? Very simply, the Pharisees were an intertestamental holiness movement that after the Maccabean revolt purified the people of Israel from the paganism that had threatened to stamp out Jewish practices and Jewish belief, the Pharisees rose up as the party that was defending and protecting the practice of God's law among the people of Israel. It was a good movement in its beginning. 
But as happens with so many holiness movements, that good intentions and a good start doesn't guarantee that it's going to maintain goodness for the long term. And as with all institutions, the longer it's been around, the more corruption seeps into it. And so we find that in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees were of a different spirit probably than their ancestors after the Maccabean revolt. Sad to see that deterioration. But the Herodians, we don't know very much about. We've got a lot of historical information on the Pharisees, and you can read whole books on the subject. But the Herodians are only mentioned three times in the Bible and very scantily outside of the Bible. And so while we don't know much about them from historical documents, we can just surmise from their name that they were supporters of the Herod dynasty, which, starting with Herod the Great, had then separated into multiple of his children, And Herod Antipas is the one that we've run into the most in the life of Jesus as he was the ruler of Galilee. And so these Herodians are a political party and not very spiritually minded. The Pharisees are a group that pretends to be very religious and spiritual, but they identify a common enemy in the Lord Jesus Christ and they go to trap him with this question. Now, as I said, people should be what they appear to be. But the scripture warns us not to take people at their word, not to be naive and to accept at face value how people pretend to be in public. And I want to show you that flattery is a common technique used by sinful men to try to gain an advantage over you. This is especially useful for young people. Young people have a tendency towards being innocent, which is good, and naive, which is not good. And I want our children to be innocent, but I don't want them to be naive. And I don't want you to have to learn the hard way that people are liars and that people will use flattery to try to get you to do things that are not in your best interest. And so, I've got a few Proverbs for us here to consider as a congregation this morning. The book of Proverbs is especially written for teenagers, young people. You young people, you should be mastering the book of Proverbs if you want to have a wise life. And so here's one for our consideration in this context. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So put your flattery sensors on. You meet somebody and they start to tell you how brave you are, how smart you are, how wonderful you are, how much they want to be your friend. Red flag. They want something from you. What is it that they want? Be aware that the flatterer is spreading a net for your feet, which is exactly what the Herodians and the Pharisees are doing here in verse 14. Notice what they said. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about other people's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're heaping on the flattery because they're spreading the net for his steps. Their words here, While actually true, this is actually an accurate description of Jesus, although they themselves did not believe it, their words here are designed to get Jesus into a certain mode of answer. They're trying to get him to answer in a certain way, and they want him to answer in a, I'm going to tell the plain truth even if Rome doesn't like it kind of way. And so they're hoping to get him in trouble with Rome. That's why the Herodians are here. The Pharisees are there because they know the law and they can ask the question in a way that's going to sound really good. And then the Herodians are there so they can go back and report to the political authorities that Jesus Christ is commanding people not to pay taxes and we need to kill this Galilean preacher. So their flattery is laying a net for his steps. Be aware that that is what 
wicked men will do. Also, false teachers will do the same. Romans chapter 16, verse 18, warns us about false teachers who come into the church. And they're going to try to gain a hearing by flattering. And come into the pulpit and say, you guys are a very discerning group of Christians. You love the Lord your God. I'm so glad to be able to be with you this morning. You're refreshing my spirit. And they're going to just flatter you and tell you how wonderful you are. Now, I tell you how wonderful you are, hopefully not for flattery, but because it's sincere and I really do love you and enjoy being here with you. But watch out for the flatterer. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So watch out for flattery coming from strangers. This is something that Pilgrim's Progress did a great job of pointing out. And in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and his friend are led astray by the flatterer who literally catches them in a net when they get off of the path. Proverbs 29, verse 5. Now, we look and we see that Jesus, in verse 15, sees through their hypocrisy. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, and Jesus' answer to them is going to make clear that what they flattered him with is actually true. He's about to tell them the truth about themselves without fear of the repercussions that might come from the Sanhedrin authorities. It says, knowing their hypocrisy. And here's another key word that I want to focus our attention on this morning as we've got some time to focus on some of the details in this text. Hypocrisy is the major sin of the Pharisees, and it's one that Jesus Christ has warned us about. And so here's another proverb that helps us to understand the flattery and the hypocrisy that is in the heart of sinful people. It says in Proverbs chapter 26, Listen up, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips. So someone has malice, that's what we're talking about, hate here. They, they have ill will, they want to harm you. But he disguises it with his lips, and he harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Jesus Christ grew up reading the book of Proverbs, and he knew this. And he was on his guard against the deceitful lips that hide the hateful, malicious heart. In fact, that's the word that Matthew uses to describe the Pharisees here, that they were asking with malice. Malice. That's that hatred in the heart. Now, the book of Psalms is all about this. That's why we had our psalm reading from chapter 5 in the book of Psalms. And the psalmist who was most likely David in a lot of these cases, was involved with politics because he was anointed to be the next king of Israel and then he became king. And when you're at the center of politics, well, then you need to be aware that the more power and money is involved in any system, the more that you're going to find hypocrisy and liars and deceit and malice and all of the evil that is in the heart of man covered over with a show of flattery. So Psalm 116, verse 11, the psalmist says, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Sometimes when you're involved in the world of politics, you just start to say in your alarm, is everyone a liar? Is everyone deceitful? Isn't there one honest person? Isn't there one truthful person in the whole world? Well, you have to get out of the world of politics sometimes to find the honest and truthful person. And also, sadly, there's a lot of politics involved with church, right? 
The more money and power that is involved in church, the more you're going to find the flattery, the deceit, the hypocrisy. It's here as well. And we need to be on guard against it. Don't think it's just a problem out there at that church or in Washington, D.C. It's a problem in every place where power and reputation and authority is on the line. All right? Another psalm on the same subject, Psalm 28, verse 3, the psalmist prays, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Okay? Don't be surprised if you go and talk with someone who claims to be a Christian and they speak peace when they're speaking to you, but then you find out that it was all a show and evil was in their hearts. Sadly, we have to be on our guard against deception. Psalm 55, verse 21, the same idea. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So learn from the example of the psalmist. Learn from the Proverbs. Don't have to learn the hard way by trusting people that you shouldn't trust. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah ties in so well with this section in the Lord Jesus Christ's life because Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel in days of great corruption and evil in the city of Jerusalem. And so now Jesus is a prophet in Jerusalem in days of great corruption and evil. And in Jeremiah chapter 9, I want you to read there verses 4 through 9, where God's word speaks to the godly in Israel and warns them about the hypocrisy that is all around. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 4. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? That was the sad state of affairs in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. And now we see the members of the Sanhedrin sending people to try to trap Jesus deceitfully with flattery and hypocrisy in order to destroy an innocent man by bringing false charges against him before the authorities. Do you think this doesn't happen in Christian schools? Think this doesn't happen in Christian churches? It's happening every day. And that's why Jerusalem was destroyed. That's why Jerusalem was destroyed. That's why Jesus tells us beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. A man should be what he appears to be, but so often we are not. As Shakespeare said, we are errant knaves all. Trust none of us. Now, 
Let's look at the lose-lose situation that the Pharisees tried to present to the Lord Jesus Christ. They asked the question in such a way that they're putting forward that this is a sincere question. They are stricken in their conscience. They really want to know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You know, some people say we should, some people say we shouldn't. We sincerely want to do God's will and, and we sincerely believe that you are the best teacher who's going to just tell us the truth about God on this. What should we do? They don't come to him and say we're Pharisees. They don't come to him and say we're Herodians. They come to him and say we're devout Jews, sincere, just normal people who want to do God's will. Tell us, what do we do? But Jesus saw through it and he calls them hypocrites. How did he know that they were hypocrites? Was it divine knowledge, a prophetic word that was given to him that he was able to see into the heart? Or was it just his own intuition that had been so well trained over the years to be able to read hypocrisy when he sees it? The Bible doesn't tell us how Jesus Christ knows, but Jesus Christ knew. And so he says, Why put me to the test? Here we come to the second part of our outline. Verses 15 to 17 this is a great question. Why put me to the test? Now, this question does a couple of things. The first thing it does is it lets these liars know that he knows. I know you're lying. I know you're not really looking for my opinion. I know you're trying to trap me. That's the first thing that he's doing here. But there's more going on than just that. He is asking them a sincere question. Why are you doing this? And that's the question that people need to be asked. Is it coming from love for God? Is it coming from love for man? The summary of the whole law is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you come to a man and you dissimulate and you lie in order to try to trap him in his words in order to destroy him, is that love for God? Is that love for neighbor? Why are you doing this? And I'm sure they could justify it in their hearts. They could say, oh, well, you know, we're doing this to protect Israel from a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker. Because we love God and we love Israel and we really believe that Jesus is leading the people astray. And, and they're all twisted thinking. They could justify what they were doing and trying to lie and cheat and destroy. So be on guard for yourself. You don't justify lying and deceit and malice because you think you're doing it for some higher purpose. Then he goes on and says, bring me a denarius. Now this is interesting. Why does Jesus take the time to have someone bring him a denarius? Why doesn't he just ask his question without getting the coin? Let's read the whole thing here. It says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, the denarius was a silver coin. And here we've got that relic from a bygone era. And the Roman denarius is pretty common, so they're not too hard to find in museums. And this is the denarius from Tiberius Caesar. So each Caesar would mint his own coins with his own image on the coin. And Tiberius is the one who is ruling now as Jesus Christ is speaking in the text. And Jesus asked for the coin, which is interesting that he didn't have one on him. And he didn't ask his disciples for one. And we'll talk about that. There might be something to that. But then he could have just referenced the coin. 
He could have just said, well, everybody knows that Caesar's image is on the coin. Everybody knows that Caesar's writing is on the coin. But instead, he says, bring it to me, that I may see it. Why? Well, he's giving people time to think. And he's also making the illustration more tangible. There's a lot of wonderful things that Jesus Christ is doing here. Also, it's a possibility that Jesus Christ is giving a lesson from this about idolatry. The Jewish people hated these coins. At least a large number of the Jewish people hated these coins. And they hated these coins, for one, because it had an image of the Caesar on it. And they were against images. The people of Israel took the Ten Commandments very seriously, and they thought that this is an idolatrous image. And in fact, there was a cult that had formed around Caesar that worshipped Caesar as a god, a divine being. And the inscription on this coin, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The divine Augustus. So not only is the image idolatrous, but also the writing is blasphemous on the coin. And the Israelites resented having to use these coins, and they resented having them in their land. And so Jesus says, bring me a denarius, that I may see it. And so what this does illustrate, if anyone was wondering, is, is it okay to hold an idolatrous coin in your hand? Is it okay to look at an idolatrous coin? There were some Jewish leaders, uh, teachers, who were famous for their holiness, that they wouldn't even look on an idolatrous image. But Jesus says, bring it here, I want to see it. So he's holding his hand, he sees it, and says, "Uh, whose image is here? Who wrote this on the coin? Everybody says, well, Caesar did. And so while disting himself from the coin, the coin's not coming from his pocket or his disciples' pocket, someone else produces the coin, yet he's not afraid to hold it. And so there is something here about being in the world, but not of the world. Jesus distances himself from the idolatry of Caesar while still at the same time living in the world where God has given Caesar authority. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. People were wondering, is it immoral to pay taxes to an evil government? Should we send taxes to Caesar who's going to use it to promote idolatrous worship and unjust wars? and the seizing of slaves. How can we participate in this evil system by supporting it financially and monetarily? Should we pay taxes or not? Notice the question was, is it lawful? What does the law of God say? Is there a conflict here between the law of God and the law of man? Which one should we obey? They might have also had in mind Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. You may indeed set as a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And so some people would say Deuteronomy does not allow for us as a Jewish people to have a foreigner ruling over us. And so it's wrong to submit to Caesar. It's wrong to pay taxes to Caesar. The only right thing to do is to do like the Maccabeans did and to rise up and revolt against an evil, idolatrous, pagan government and to be able to establish ourselves as a theocracy under God's law with purity and one of our own people ruling over us as the law says. So there's a lot that is packed into this question as to should we pay taxes to Caesar or not. It's not just about the tax, it's about submission. It's about involvement. And Jews had different positions on this. 
Now, how much were the Roman taxes on the Jews? We started off today talking about how the average American family probably pays about 38% a year in taxes to the state and federal government. How much were Roman taxes on the Jews? Well, there was a tax on agricultural produce, and I don't have too much information on that. But if you were producing as a farmer, there was a tax on what you were producing. And of course, that gets passed on to everyone else. If you're going to tax the producer, the consumer is the one who ends up having to pay it because that all gets bundled into the cost of production. So there was that. And then there was a poll tax, a head tax. And that head tax also kind of functioned as a property tax. And that was on every male citizen who would be the, the head of a household, owner of property. And that was established in 6 AD in Israel. So Jesus Christ was a, a baby. The census was being taken when he was born. And the purpose of that census was to determine how many people would be paying the tax, this poll tax as it was called. And this tax, when it was instituted in 6 AD, was revolted against. Judas of Galilee led a revolt against Rome because they tried to put this tax on, and him and his followers were killed, and the people had to submit to the tax. The tax was one denarius a year. A denarius was equal to the amount of wages you'd get for a day's labor. So this is one 360th if you're working every day, but Jews don't work every day, so take off, you know, one-seventh from 360, and then you've got like 330. So it's like one 300th of your income for the year. Not that big of a tax. And yet it was resented because it symbolized submission to a pagan evil authority. On the flip side of the coin, I didn't mention that, on the flip side of the coin is the writing, you can see here, Pontiff Maxim. Pontiff is priest, Maxim is chief priest, highest priest. And so Tiberius was not only the son of the divine Augustus, but he was also the high priest of the pagan religion. So you could see how the Jews wouldn't be too excited about using his coins and giving him tribute as a blaspheming head of a pagan religion. Now, one of his most famous statements is this one here, where it says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In essence, Jesus is saying to give back to Caesar. That's the literal rendering of render, to give back. It's his idolatrous, blasphemous coin, give it back to him, is one way that you could interpret this, since he's just talked about the image and the writing on the coin. Or, if you wanted to be more generous towards Caesar, you could say, well, it's got his picture and his writing on it, it must belong to him, so give it back to him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's his coin, give it to him. But, he says, render to God the things that are God's. So Jesus successfully distances himself from the idolatry of Caesar and Rome, while at the same time being subject to the governing authorities, while at the same time giving the honor and glory that belongs to God, to God alone, and not to Caesar. Masterful. That's why it says they marveled at him. They had no idea how he was going to get out of this lose-lose situation that they tried to paint him into. And he did. He didn't lose any goodwill with the people with this answer. He didn't get himself in trouble with Rome with this answer. And so Jesus navigates a very touchy political question with great expertise. And that's a good example for us. You know, it's not enough in this world to be right. 
you also have to be cunning. It's not enough in this world just to be right. You also have to be cunning. Because if you're right, but you're naive, the enemy will trap you. Here we're hypocrites on the hunt for the precious life of Jesus Christ. But he was too cunning for them. They're going to keep trying. They failed the first attempt. They failed the second attempt. But, you know, the wily hunter, he doesn't give up. He keeps trying. They're no match for him, and it's kind of fun to watch. It's fun to watch him outsmart them. Now, you may not be as smart as Jesus, but God gives you his spirit. God gives you his wisdom. And Christ is being formed in you so that you can do what Jesus Christ taught us to do and that we can act like him. Now, some application. Give to God what belongs to him. That's what Jesus Christ says here. Give to God what belongs to him. Well, what belongs to God? Well, the scripture informs us on that. Your worship belongs to God, not to Caesar. Your love, your highest love, your obedience, your heart, your faith. When I talk about obedience, you know, one of the things that God says is pay your taxes. Do you know that it's a command in the Bible to pay your taxes? We talked about this last year. We had three weeks on good citizenship, building off of Romans chapter 13. Good citizenship 101, 201, and 301, where we learned from Romans chapter 13, as, as we have here, that we are supposed to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, Jesus Christ did this when he was before Pilate. Pilate said, don't you answer me? Don't you know that I have the power to set you free or the power to put you to death? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any power over me unless it had been given to you from God. And you're ultimately accountable, the implication there, you're ultimately accountable to God for how you use the power that he's given to you. And so me, instead of being afraid of you, you should be afraid of God. That's what Jesus is telling him there. But Jesus was subject. He didn't say, well, because you're a bad man, you don't have any power, any authority. No. He says, God gave you the authority, use it wisely. That's what he tells him. And Jesus was subject to the authorities. When the authorities came to arrest Jesus at night on trumped up charges, and his disciples wanted to defend him with force, Jesus said, stop it. Don't do that. Submit to the governing authorities, even when they arrest you for doing what's right. Don't yell at them. Don't disrespect them. Submit. There is no authority except from God, and God will hold the authorities accountable for the good that they do and for the evil that they do. But it goes on in Romans chapter 13, the second command, after he explains that God is the source of all authority, the second command there is pay your taxes. Now, one three hundredth of your income paid to Caesar versus 40% of your income paid to the government of the United States is a big difference. You could make a good argument that we are overtaxed. But the Bible doesn't say pay your taxes as long as your taxes are reasonable and fair. The Bible says pay your taxes. You know, God has a lot of people in this world and they don't all belong to him. And if God wants the people in this world who don't belong to him to rise up and fight against unjust taxes, well, they can do that if they want. But as far as God's children go, God says submit to the governing authorities and pay your taxes. Now, 
Another point of application here is that we need to learn how to wisely handle trap questions. We need to learn to wisely handle trap questions. You know, when you go out into the world, there's questions for information, and then there's questions for ammunition, and you need to know the difference. When is someone asking you for information, and when is someone asking you for ammunition that they want to shoot at you? It's not enough to be right. You have to be cunning. Don't give them ammunition to attack you with. If you go out into the world and they say, is it okay to hate? Don't say, well, the Bible says that God hates sinners, so yes, it's okay to hate. You just gave them ammunition. Why give them that ammunition? If they come to you and ask you, is it okay to hate? You say, the Bible teaches that we are to have malice towards none and goodwill towards all. But that doesn't mean that we're supposed to normalize all behavior that we're supposed to encourage behavior that's good for people and good for society and discourage behavior that's bad for society. So out of our love for mankind, we point out that certain things are sinful and wrong and cause damage. Explain it in a way that they can't use it against you but is still honest to the truth. That's being cunning while also being innocent and righteous. They're going to try to trap you. They're going to try to get to you to use their words and their way so that they can shoot at Christianity and destroy it. They'll say, doesn't a woman have a right to do what she wants with her own body? That's not a question for information. That's a question for ammunition. And even when you are wise and cunning, they are still going to lie about you. Jesus navigated this perfectly and they marveled at him. But do you know what happens anyway? Luke chapter 23, verse 2. They began to accuse him before the Roman government, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is king, Christ. They're going to lie about you. They're going to say, You're hateful bigots. Don't help them to make the case that you're a hateful bigot. If they want to lie about you, fine. But be wise in how you present the truth in a world of hostile people. Okay? That's what we learn from Jesus Christ here in his interactions with the Pharisees. Think about what Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28 says. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Think before you speak. Is this something that can be used against me? Then I don't want to say it in a way that's going to be used against me. But we have to think about what we speak in all kinds of situations, not just when we're facing someone who's trying to trap us in our words, but any time you're opening your mouth. Think before you speak. Is this what is going to bring about the results that would be best? Can I say it in a way that would be more acceptable to the person I'm trying to reach? Or am I just being so blunt and honest and I don't care whether or not they respond in the right way? Well, maybe you should care about how people respond. And think about, how can I say this in a way that's going to help them to respond in a good way? Right? And then Proverbs chapter 16, verse 23, on the same theme, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Here Jesus Christ has a wise heart and he makes his speech judicious. He's adding persuasiveness to his lips. He's not saying anything that's untrue. He is being honest to God and honest to man and yet he's saying it in a way that is acceptable to the people that he's speaking to. You know, it's so hard to walk this line. Some preachers try so hard to be acceptable that they end up twisting the truth. And some preachers try so hard to tell the truth that they end up just being unacceptable. 
You can hold on to one and still hold on to the other. God gave us two hands to hold on to two things at once. You can have the truth and you can have love for people and love for God at the same time. Jesus warned us, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, children, behold, Jesus is sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You've been blessed to grow up in the sheep pen where you have good shepherds and you've got people who love you and are sincere and take care and look out for you. It's not the way it is in the world. Don't think you can go out in the world and make friends and that everyone's going to have your back. You'll find out the hard way. And especially as a Christian. The ruler of this world hates Christians. He wants to destroy you. So be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. One other point of application that I think is important here. We talked about knowing how to handle trap questions wisely. Don't give them the ammunition they're looking for. We talked about how you pay your taxes, even if they're exorbitant taxes. And we could talk a lot more about that subject. But on a related subject, I think it's important to point this out, that we as Christians are responsible with how we vote with regards to taxes. And I was listening to R.C. Sproul this week on this passage, and he made a great point. He was talking about how one of the French who were watching what was going on with the formation of our democracy, like Benjamin Franklin was writing to that other guy at the beginning, but de Tocqueville, he warned us as he looked at our democracy forming and the birth of it, and he said, well, that's great and all, but when people learn that ballots are worth money, there's going to be trouble. You see, democracy dies when people realize that they can vote for themselves money. That's what's happened. And Sproul warned us as Christians, he said this, anytime you can vote a tax on your neighbor that is not on you, you are practicing legalized theft. Sproul said that your ballot is a bullet. That the laws that we vote for are enforced by guns. And if you vote to take someone else's property for your benefit, that's not justice. That's theft. It's legalized theft. We call it social justice. And Sproul said, if the whole world does it, you don't. A Christian should never. We don't use the ballot to redistribute wealth towards ourselves, even if everyone else is using the ballot to redistribute wealth for themselves. Though everyone else steals from you, you don't steal from them. You're not overcome by evil, but you overcome evil with good. And so be wise at the ballot box on how you vote with regard to taxes. The mercenary use of ballots in order to gain wealth is killing democracy in the West. People don't know it yet, but the wise see it, and they know what will be the end result. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about taxes, government. I said a lot of it last year when we were in Romans chapter 13. We got a little bit more of it today. Maybe someday I'll get to the rest of it, but this will suffice for now. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Lord God, we come to you as the all-wise, all-knowing God who sees through the hypocrisy of mankind, that what mankind presents as justice, equity, is actually envy, greed, 
and theft. What mankind presents as just looking out for the purity of religion is really just a self-promotion and a guarding of the authority that men have attained. Lord God, you see through to the heart of every individual. And we ask you, Lord God, for help. Reveal to us our own hypocrisy, how we lie to ourselves in order to justify not loving you and not loving our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we pray that you would pour out the Spirit of Christ upon our hearts so that we might worship you in sincerity. We might worship you with a holiness that is evident in heaven. Father, we thank you for the Word of Christ that comes home to our hearts and instructs us and teaches us. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. We marvel at his wisdom, his cunning, his innocence, and his love. We pray that you would make us more like him as we behold him in the mirror of your word day by day. Amen.